0: This is Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, joining me in segments two and three on today's program is Mr. Brian London. If you've been a longtime listener to the program, you may remember that Brian has been a guest on the program in the past. Brian, a very interesting guy, produces the oldest investment conference in the world. It's called the New Orleans Investment Conference, Uh, and Brian is also a very prolific newsletter publisher, and I'll chat with Brian today about his take on the condition of the economy, uh, what monetary policy, what the Fed's doing means for you, and Brian has also some very interesting comments on buying gold, so you'll want to stay tuned and listen in on segments two and three of today's program And in this segment, I want to talk to you a bit about uh, something that as I go back and look at history, and primarily when I look at history, I look at economic history and financial history, but this is really true no matter what you look at, historically speaking. And I should title this segment, The More Things Change, The More They Stay the Same, I think it was King Solomon who said that there really is nothing new under the sun. And it's remarkable to me, the more I study history, the more I dig into what has happened in the past, what policy responses have been in the past, that history does repeat itself. Now, last week I was watching CNBC, which I don't often do. And there was a venture capitalist that w- that appeared on uh, the program. It was a halftime report, actually, was the program. And I'm going to try to get the name uh, right here. It's Shamath paley Mr. Paley-Hapitaya said that monetary, and he's a, he's a pretty smart guy. He's a venture capitalist. He's out there raising money uh, for uh, new businesses. And uh, Mr. Hapatia said this. He said, the Fed and other central banks around the world have eliminated recessions. They've eliminated recessions through their aggressive monetary stimulus programs, such as quantitative easing and record low interest rates. Now, if you're a new listener, let me explain to you exactly what that means. Quantitative easing is just another way of saying creating money out of thin air. It's literally printing money. And in our banking system, the Fractionalized Reserve Banking System, the lower interest rates are and the more people borrow and the faster money moves, the more money is created. So essentially, both of these policies, quantitative easing and record low interest rates, one is actually printing money One, as people borrow money and money moves through the system faster, more money is created. But they are both money creation strategies. So to paraphrase what Mr. said, money printing eliminates recessions. Wow, is that the case? Well, it certainly is an idea that is gaining some traction on last week's program I talked to you about an academic uh, economic advisor to Mr. Bernie Sanders, a lady by the name of Stephanie Kelton, who is promoting the idea of modern monetary theory. That is just another way to say print money. Ms. Kelton said that stadiums don't run out of points and governments don't run out of money. I would say that the world of academia doesn't run out of people with ideas that don't work. Now, if you take a look at what this gentleman is saying, it's nothing new. In fact, former Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen made a similar statement in 2017. I went up went out and uh, dug up this quote by uh, Ms Yellen. She a couple years ago said this, and I'm quoting, Would I say there will never, ever be another financial crisis? You probably know that would be going too far, but I do think we're much safer, and I hope that it will not be in our lifetimes, and I don't believe it will be. So Ms. Yellen seems to be of the opinion, like Ms. Kelton, like Mr. Paley-Hapitaya, that money printing eliminates recessions. Now, I would have a bit of a contrarian approach to statements like this. I would say that statements like this, when they're being made in the quantity that these statements are being made, they're actually forecasts. And they forecast, I believe, that a bust is just around the corner. See, when you study history, statements like this are most commonly made during a bubble, or during the latter stages of a bubble or cycle. When you you analyze these statements, they really indicate complacency and overconfidence, and it should be a huge red flag, because complacency and overconfidence precede busts. In fact, Scripture says pride comes before the fall. Now, during a bubble, market participants, those out there participating in the market, they lose sight of reality. They become delusional, and they believe this idea that the market or economy is now experiencing a new paradigm. We have new rules. We've canceled out the old rules. Well, the eternal truth is this. You cannot change the fundamental rules of economics. I mean, back in the 1990s, we had people out there prior to this tech stock bubble blowing up saying that we have a new economy, recessions have been eliminated, this is the new reality. And when those statements started to be made in significant quantity, we had a bust. Now, what Mr. Paley-Hapitaya doesn't realize or isn't talking about anyway is that when money is created, it has to go somewhere. So this, this recovery that we've experienced is really just inflating new bubbles. And the Fed hasn't eliminated recessions. The bubbles just haven't burst yet, so it may seem that way. And there's a pattern. If we go back and look at where interest rates were during the tech stock bubble, they fell to in the 4% range. Now, interest rates did go back up to about 6.5%. The tech stock bubble blew up, and then Mr. Greenspan dropped the interest rate back to 1%. Money moved faster, money was created, the housing bubble burst, and interest rates dropped from about 5% back to zero, and nothing happened, so the Fed proceeded to engage in quantitative easing or money printing. So the pattern is indisputable. You can go back over the last 20 years, and we've seen this pattern repeat itself two more times, and yet we have some people, presumably very bright people, that say this is the new reality. Now, if you go back to the 1920s, in 1929, there was a very bright guy by the name of Irving Fisher, Mr. Fisher had a Ph.D. from Yale University, and while he did some great work in the field of economics, in 1929, he famously said that stocks have now reached what appears to be a permanently high plateau. Mr. Fisher, of course, 13 days after making that statement, was proven wrong when the stock market began to correct. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, I bring this up because if you're managing assets, if you're planning for retirement, you are affected when bubbles burst. And we advocate something called a two-bucket approach. And I'd like to extend an offer to you to get a free book that explains all this. This book uh, uh, I wrote a few years ago. It is now uh, on its third edition. It has been an Amazon bestseller. And in it, we explain bubbles, and we explain, more importantly, strategies that you should consider. If you go to the website newretirementrulesbook.com, we'd be glad to send you a free copy. The website, again, is newretirementrulesbook.com. Just let us know where to mail your book, and I'll be glad to get a copy out to you. I will be back after these words with Brian London. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, Just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Dennis Tubergen here, host of RLA Radio. I'd like to invite you to get a free copy of my best-selling book, New Retirement Rules. Visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to request your free copy. The book will help you identify the risks that could threaten your dream of a comfortable, stress-free retirement and give you strategies to consider to help you avoid these threats. Visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to request your free copy. The New Retirement Rules book will thoroughly explain the two-bucket approach to managing your nest egg that we frequently discuss on the RLA radio program. You'll also discover why the traditional approach to retirement income planning may fail many investors moving ahead. For a limited time, the book is free. Just visit www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com to get your free copy. www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I have the pleasure today of talking with Mr. Brian London. Uh, Brian is the publisher of Gold Newsletter. He also produces the New Orleans Investment Conference, and uh, we'll learn a little bit more about those as we talk to Brian. But Brian, welcome back to the program.
1: Great to be with you, Dennis. Thank you.
0: Well, For our listeners, Brian, that may not be familiar with the New Orleans Investment Conference, could you fill them in?
1: Absolutely. It's the oldest investment event in the world, amazingly, the oldest continually running investment event in the world. We are celebrating our 45th year this year. Um, the, the The conference was started by my mentor in the industry, the late Jim Blanchard, who was instrumental in getting gold ownership legalized for American citizens in the early 1970s. So they, had, uh, they were successful in that and, uh, and knew it was going to be signed into law in 1974. So Jim decided to have a conference to teach investors how to invest in gold. And that first event was in 1974, and over the years it's expanded to focus on all of the investment markets, all of the asset classes, Uh, We've always had a focus on geopolitics and economics. We've had uh, Ayn Rand had her last public appearance at our event. We've had Lady Margaret Thatcher, uh, Milton Friedman a number of times, Alan Greenspan a number of times, F.A. Hayek. Uh, uh, Just the the list goes on and on. All of the uh, or many of the leading lights in geopolitics and economics over the last over the really modern history have uh, graced our stage, and we're kind of known for having really big speakers like that and uh, insights that you won't get from other events or the mainstream financial media.
0: That is a very impressive lineup, and if any of our listeners would like to learn more, you can go to NewOrleansConference.com and tell us about your work with Gold Newsletter, Brian.
1: Well, Gold Newsletter was also started by Jim Blanchard. Uh, it was actually started the day that Nixon closed the gold window. And what that refers to is, is uh, you know, we got off the gold standard in 1933 because of FDR. But after World War II, as part of the Bretton Woods Agreement, other countries could exchange dollars for gold. Uh, and the dollar was fully convertible into gold, but only for other other nations, other uh, national central banks. Well, the wily French got a hold of that idea and, and decided that the dollar was way overvalued and started uh, sending all their dollars to the U.S. and saying, "Send us all that gold you got in Fort Knox," which was going on going for a while. And then Nixon said, "We can't have this anymore," and he he ended uh, dollar convertibility into gold uh, in 1971. And on that day, Jim Blanchard knew that uh, this would result in uh, really much higher inflation rates that would rob American citizens of their wealth. So he began lobbying for the return of gold ownership, legalized gold ownership to American citizens. And his uh, primary tool in that fight was Gold Newsletter, a newsletter that he started on his kitchen table that day. And, And we're still going on right now. We're still... We're the oldest uh, precious metals investment advisory in the world. We've uh, been constantly published, and this is our 48th year now.
0: Well, terrific. And if our listeners want to learn more, they can go to goldnewsletter.com. So, Brian, let me just jump in a minute, because the, I appreciate you sharing the backstory story on, uh, on gold being legalized again. Um, and when you take a look at what gold did as the – the, the the fiat currency creation happened. I think gold went from what, thirty five dollars an ounce uh to over eight hundred in the early eighties. Yeah. Um, and, and now we've we, we seem to almost uh, at least in, in some folks's perspective, including mine, we seem to be poised for maybe a bit of a, a repeat of money creation, only this time on steroids. Can you comment on Fed policy?
1: Sure. You know what? in nineteen seventy one, uh the the Fed and and Really, other central bankers, but primarily the Fed, because gold was, was, had just become, well, actually was, was still illegal to own in the United States, but it was still tied to the dollar. But once Nixon severed that link to gold, then uh, central bankers, the Federal Reserve, all of a sudden had the ability to, to print money and monetize debt at will. And uh, I liken it to giving a, a teenager a, a bottle of Jack Daniels and the keys to the car. You know, they immediately took that newfound power and ran it into the ditch with the 1970s and rampant inflation. Uh, but after that, they became a little bit more circumspect about it all. They, they, they started, uh, uh, Volcker, of course, came in and, and, and really clamped down on inflation by raising interest rates to, to tremendous levels. But after that, as the economy start, would start to soften, the Federal Reserve would come in and lower interest rates and try to ease the uh, decline and, in effect, would not allow any serious bust to occur in the economy. And as we know, in a free market, these kinds of periodic corrections in the cycle are what washes out all the excesses of the previous run-up. So what happened was, over time, is that the Federal Reserve would have to lower rates rates uh, more precipitously, uh, do more and more which, with each of these downturns to prevent a more serious downturn or a, or a depression. Um, but over time, you know, the patient needs more and more drugs because it builds up a tolerance. And finally, in, uh, after the 2008 crisis, the Fed had to resort to quantitative easing, which was unprecedented in its history, uh, and essentially, despite what the Federal Reserve says, was money printing. They would take, create newly, uh, newly minted, actually just a keystroke, they would create new dollars and the, the Federal Reserve would uh, take in those dollars and they would go into the economy. They didn't really sterilize it in any way because uh, the federal government was paying for creating dollars, injecting them into the economy to pay, pay its bills, And then uh, the the debt associated with those dollars was just taken in by the Federal Reserve. Uh, So there was really, really helicopter money. Um, They were forced to do that in 2008, and they have not learned the lesson that when you do that, you just blow up the next bubble. And that's kind of where we are right now. The the S&P 500, uh, uh, its rise since 2008. Was about 97% correlated with the uh, the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve, so there's no doubt that this liquidity event, this money printing, this easing of interest rates to to 5,000-year lows to zero and beyond, uh, this policy inflated the the current boom we're having in U.S. equities and uh, in real estate. So the question is, can we ever get a normalized level of interest rates, can we ever get back to normal without these kinds of excessive monetary accommodation policies that the Fed has in place? And uh, I think the question is, is at this point, no, they can't. Well,
0: and, and, and Brian, just to, to maybe Pig, or d- jump into that and, and, and expand on that. You know, you had the Bank of Japan that talked about tightening and, and uh, raising interest rates. You had uh, the, the European Central Bank and, and the Fed. And they've all reversed course here in the last six months or so. And uh, it seems now that we're going to have QE to infinity. Uh, And we all know that you can print money for a while, but history teaches us you can't print money forever and get away with it. So one, do you think we do have QE for infinity? I mean, I think you just said that no interest rates are not going to get back to what we might consider a more normal level. And then two, in your view, what's the end game?
1: Well, I don't know what the end game is, or, or when it's going to happen. That this monetary regime, at some point, will uh, lose credibility. At, at some point, that may be in the next boom bust cycle. It may be two cycles down the road. It may be ten years down the road. But at some point, it's going to lose credibility. And and yes, there it they will continue to print money. Uh, they will never return to a uh, a normalized. Uh, level of interest rates and and the latter is because the the reason why they can't get to a normalized interest rate regime is because the debt has has risen so high if the uh, the fed ever allowed uh, the fed funds rate for example to get to three percent and we know that was kind of its target when it was trying to raise rates because if you uh, uh, economists recognize that you you have to cut rates at least 3% to get any kind of an impact on the economy. So the Fed was desperately trying to get some room above zero on interest rates so it could cut in the event of the next recession. And and they were targeting at least 3%. But the problem with that is when you have a Fed funds rate of about 3%, historically the actual rate of interest that the Fed ends up paying on the the federal debt, is about three to four percentage points above the Fed funds rate. Um, If they got to 3%, that would mean the effective rate we would be paying on that debt would be about six or seven percent. And with the the federal debt at current levels, not assuming any rise in the federal debt, but just at current levels, that would mean the government would have to pay about a trillion dollars a year in, serv- in, in debt service costs on the federal debt. Now, the, the public would not put up with that. There is no way that would be politically palatable to pay upwards of a trillion dollars every year just in interest costs on the federal debt before you were paying for uh, welfare, Medicare, uh, national defense, or anything else, and much of that money going to overseas investors. So that's that's the political and in really practical impossibility of rates ever getting to you know the supposedly normal levels throughout history of 5 6 or
0: 7%. Well if you're just joining us we're chatting today with Mr. Brian London. Brian is the publisher of Gold Newsletter. The website is goldnewsletter.com. He also produces the New Orleans Investment Conference, the oldest investment conference in the world. You can get more information at neworleansconference.com. And, Brian, I've got time, uh, looks like, for maybe one more question uh, in this segment. Now, when you take a look at this, really the numbers you just outlined with the national debt and with normal interest rates or more normal interest rates, what it's going to cost just to service the interest on the debt, it seems that we will have QE, to infinity, and won't that mean that at some point we'll see inflation really take hold, even to a, a greater extent than we've already seen it?
1: At some point, you know, the, the problem that we, or the issue of inflation. Everybody really thought, in the from 2008-2009 on, when the Fed began these unprecedented quantitative easing programs, they really expected that we would we would see a much higher rate of inflation, of price inflation. But we know that, that price inflation is only a symptom of the underlying disease of monetary inflation. When you create too many dollars for the number of goods in an economy, what happened in this instance, and it's especially evident in retrospect, is that the inflation from all this money p- printing from from QE one, two, and three was uh, the, the result of that was inflation in the prices. Uh, financial assets, the stock market, and real estate—it never really got to Main Street, um, and and that was partly because the Fed had created these kinds of walls around the financial system. It's like the levees down here in New Orleans that protect us from from flooding and from hurricanes. If you're within the storm protection system, you're okay. If you're outside of it, you're basically out of luck. So the Federal Reserve's primary reason for being is to protect the banks and to protect Wall Street. And they did, and 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 that's the sector that benefited from uh, quantitative easing and all these extraordinarily loose monetary policies.
0: Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today is Mr. Brian London. Brian publishes Gold Newsletter, and you can get more information on that publication at goldnewsletter.com. You can also check out the New Orleans Investment Conference that Brian also produces. Uh, More information is available at neworleansconference.com. I'll be back with Brian after these words. Stay with us. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website, again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website, again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Dennis Tubergen here, host of RLA Radio. I'd like to invite you to get a free copy of my best-selling book, New Retirement Rules. Visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to request your free copy. The book will help you identify the risks that could threaten your dream of a comfortable, stress-free retirement and give you strategies to consider to help you avoid these threats. Visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to request your free copy. The New Retirement Rules book will thoroughly explain the two-bucket approach to managing your nest egg that we frequently discuss on the RLA radio program. You'll also discover why the traditional approach to retirement income planning may fail many investors moving ahead. For a limited time, the book is free. Just visit www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com to get your free copy. www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I'm chatting today with Mr. Brian London. Uh, If you're just joining us, Brian is the publisher of Gold Newsletter. You can get more information on or about Gold Newsletter at goldnewsletter.com, and he also produces the New Orleans Investment Conference. Uh, More information is available at neworleansconference.com. So, Brian, I guess the the question I have, and, and I know a lot of our listeners do as well, Uh, Well, timing is very difficult to predict. You know, you said that we we may see uh, some big changes after the next bust cycle. It might be a couple cycles down the road. Um, But it it seems to me that every time there is the bust part of the cycle kicks in, it takes more and more stimulus to get really not as great of results. I mean, it takes more to, to build it back up every time. Do you want to comment on that?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, the analogy, of course, is that of a, of a drug addict, you know, that's addicted to uh, whatever drug it, that, that person is addicted to, they develop a, co- a tolerance to it. So uh, they need more and more. And, and the economy and the markets are absolutely addicted to easy money uh, in the United States and really across the world in every developed economy because every central bank has been following the same prescription. And so these, you don't have a, a real, a strong, a fundamentally based uh, economy or economic growth that's, that's based on, on savings and capital and, and investment. It's largely built on speculation and easy money. And, and you know, you, in an environment like that, as we've seen, you've had corporations borrowing money at, at little or no cost and buying back their own stock and juicing up uh, equity returns but not really investing in plants and equipment and productivity and growing the economy from a really solid fundamental base. So that's that's where we are right now. And, and you know, if, if the Fed came back uh, tomorrow with quantitative easing at a level that they had with QE1, um, I don't think there would be much of a fundamental reaction in the market. Now, initially there would be because just that policy shift you'd see a tremendous burst of speculation in in the equity markets uh, and probably in real estate as well, and certainly gold. But I don't think that you'd have as much of a fundamental effect, uh, even if they did the levels they did in QE2 and even if they did the levels they did in QE3. They'd have to come back, and and the market would not be satisfied unless they came back with an unprecedented level of quantitative easing of money printing uh, the next go-around. And we know that there will be a next go-around. We know it's coming. Uh, the Fed is preparing for it, and they've already had, you know, a very significant shift in their policies by just pausing their interest rates hikes.
0: So, Brian, when this uh, all comes to a head, to use that term, uh, what's your opinion on some countries somewhere in the world, once again, going back to the gold exchange standard?
1: You know, I'm, I'm a bit doubtful of that. I think there are some practical limitations there. Uh, I think that a country that did do that would, would uh, immediately obtain a level of credibility that, would, that other currencies would not have. And, uh, and I think that some are preparing for that. If, if they're not preparing for an outright gold standard, they, they do uh, recognize and respect the role that gold has Uh, in central banking and as an anchor for a currency. We've seen China, for instance, really ratchet up its gold purchases. It has about 1,800 tons of gold in its official reserves. Right now, most analysts think that number is incorrect. That's the number they report. They really think the number is closer to 4,000 to to 4,500 tons of gold in their official reserves. Uh, and they've been buying steadily actually since about 2013. They've, they've been buying and importing gold at a breakneck pace. Russia as well has, has stepped up its gold purchases. It recently sold the last of its U.S. treasuries and converted those proceeds into gold. So we, we know that they're thinking about uh, when the house of cards comes crashing down. We know that they're thinking about uh, that being a period of. of Uh, vulnerability for the U.S., and we know that both of those nations will seek to try and and take advantage of that.
0: So with the quantitative easing policy that has been pursued by many central banks around the world, um, and I want to get your comment on uh, negative interest rates here in just a second, but when we go back and look at a gold chart, uh, just look at a price chart. Gold has really been, you know, in my view anyway, in a trading range for the last five, five and a half years. Why hasn't gold really broken out to maybe even the prior levels when we saw gold at $1,900 an ounce? What, what's, what's holding it up in your view?
1: Well, I wish I knew, <laughs> frankly, because I would have expected it to be uh, much higher by now. But if you do look at the charts closely, we bottomed in uh, December of 2015. Uh, on the gold price, and we had a nice run-up in 2016, uh, fell back a bit, had a decent run-up in 2017, and it has been trading sideways since then. Uh, from a technical standpoint, it's been kind of a rounded long-term bottom that uh, a lot of people looking at as a really strong foundation for an ultimate rise. Uh, but, but gold has, uh, doesn't have a lot of friends in the mainstream uh, markets. In financial centers we see that the, the paper gold market which is the futures and options uh, for gold are uh, uh, widely considered to be uh, manipulated um, it's very easy to send the gold price down uh, and uh, and we see that it's it's it doesn't seem to post the kinds of uh, as dramatic of rallies as it has uh, uh, sell-offs so it is uh, whether it's done for uh, official reasons or not, I'm not quite sure. But there's no doubt that the futures markets are structured in a way that that any large-scale trader can make a lot of money by forcing a market like gold of that size down uh, in a very severe fashion, trading it on the way down, and then building up positions on the way down and, and sending it higher, uh, both from high-frequency traders and people that do it over the <laughs> Uh, not just minutes, but do it over the span of uh, of a few weeks. So, that's one aspect of it. It's hard for been hard for gold to really make headway with these the structure of these paper gold markets. But eventually, uh, the Fed is going to have to return to uh, very overt, dramatic uh, easing policies, quantitative easing, and cutting interest rates. And when that happens, I think you'll see gold. Uh, Quickly add hundreds of dollars to its price and begin another run up that will exceed its its previous highs.
0: And let, let me go back. I mentioned it just a, a moment ago. Uh, negative interest rates. When you and I, and I don't know the exact number, but I've had some guests here on the program quote a number that you know nine to ten trillion dollars of of sovereign debt worldwide is now yielding negative interest rates, which means. I'm going to give this government money for 10 years, and in 10 years I'm going to get back less than I gave them. Isn't that uh, d- d- just a sign as to how crazy things are, and isn't that more bullish for tangible assets like gold?
1: Oh, absolutely it is. And, and as a sign of how crazy it is, realize that throughout human history, the natural rate of interest has been about 6%. Uh, in recorded history, uh, 5,000 years of recorded history, history there's never been any the same period of negative interest rates before so these these are the lowest rates in human history and they would have never been possible before and under any kind of a monetary regime that was tied to, to precious metals so yeah this is this is a fairly extreme period we're we're living in and if you look through all of the uh, asset classes all of the economic indicators The one that indicator that really tracks the gold market, intangible assets in general, most closely is the real rate of interest. Um, That's the interest rate adjusted for inflation. So we're, you know, interest rates right now are about, or the Fed funds rate is about 2.5%. And uh, inflation is right under 2%. So we have a real rate of, uh, Of interest that's about a half of a percent. Rates that low, real rates that low, are enormously bullish for gold, uh, for silver, and really for other tangible assets. So when you have a low real rate of interest, uh, it's an enormously bullish tailwind for precious metals. And and that's because precious metals don't earn uh, a rate of return. They actually have a holding cost if you're holding physical metals. So if you have, uh, uh, you know, gold has zero, pays zero interest. But in an era when you have negative interest rates, when people are handing their money to uh, central banks for a negative return, then gold, in comparison, is a high-yielding asset. So that's why people buy the metals when you have such an extraordinarily uh, uh, extreme monetary policy as negative interest rates.
0: So, Brian, um, in fact, if you're just joining us, uh, give the website one more time here. Brian's a publisher of Gold Newsletter. The website is goldnewsletter.com. What are you advising your newsletter readers at this point in time?
1: Well, in Gold Newsletter, we focus on mining stocks that offer leverage to the precious metals. Uh, they are highly speculative, and I don't recommend them for everybody. It, it I don't recommend that anybody delve into this area without doing a lot of homework, uh, reading my newsletter and, and some other newsletters that are, uh, can give them background and going to conferences and the like. And they can learn about all of that in a free report that we have on our website. Uh, that's the Investor's Guide to Gold and Silver. And it's, it's a, a detailed report tells people everything they need to know about investing in precious metals in, in every manner and form. But what I do recommend for the general public, the general investing public, is that they have some level of physical precious metals uh, in their possession or with ready access uh, as an insurance policy against uh, uh, whatever may happen in the financial markets. It's, it's been proven throughout human history uh, that, that gold and silver protect people's wealth when you have inflationary episodes when currencies. As they always do are depreciated because debts are, are, are run too high. So this has happened over and over throughout human history. It's going to happen again and people really need to hold physical precious metals to ensure against that uh, inevit- inevitability.
0: All right we're gonna have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Mr. Brian London. Uh, I'll mention also uh, Brian uh, actually produces the New Orleans Investment Conference more information there at neworleansconference.com so Brian thanks a lot for joining us again love to have you back
1: Great to be here with you Dennis anytime thank you
0: We will be back after these words Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, Just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Dennis Tubergen here, host of RLA Radio. I'd like to invite you to get a free copy of my best-selling book, New Retirement Rules. Visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to request your free copy. The book will help you identify the risks that could threaten your dream of a comfortable, stress-free retirement and give you strategies to consider to help you avoid these threats. Visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to request your free copy. The New Retirement Rules book will thoroughly explain the two-bucket approach to managing your nest egg that we frequently discuss on the RLA radio program. You'll also discover why the traditional approach to retirement income planning may fail many investors moving ahead. For a limited time, the book is free. Just visit www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com to get your free copy. www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com I am Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. Thanks to Mr. Brian London for joining us on today's program as well. On next week's program, I'm welcoming back returning guest, Dr. Chris Martinson. Uh, Dr. Martinson has a new book uh, that has been released called Prosper. Uh, His original book, Crash Course, is still very relevant today. Uh, And in the book, Crash Course, he talks about inflation. And if we call inflation really by what it really is, it's currency devaluation, because inflation, technically defined, is an expansion of the money supply. However, one of the effects of inflation is that consumer prices go up, meaning the same dollar you had in your pocket five years ago buys a lot less than if you have that same dollar in your pocket today. Now, inflation is measured officially by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Now, not surprisingly, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, using their methodologies, which we'll talk just a little about, a little bit about in this segment, uh, understate what the inflation rate actually is. Now, to be fair, the Bureau of Labor Statistics has a very tough job because they have to come up with a rate of inflation that applies to everybody. Now, that's impossible. I mean, if you're 20 years old living in your parents' basement eating ramen noodles, your inflation rate, your personal inflation rate is obviously going to be a lot different than someone who's 80 years old living in downtown Chicago, living on a meager pension that doesn't adjust for inflation and taking lots of, prescriptions med- lots of prescription meds. So my point is, it's a difficult job. But even after cutting the Bureau of Labor statistics some slack, we have to look at how they're actually calculating inflation. Now, there are three main statistical tricks that the Bureau of Labor Statistics imposes on the Consumer Price Index. So there's three things that they do to adjust the numbers. Now, those of you that have been out buying prescription drugs, buying automobiles, buying health care, you inherently know that the official inflation rate is obviously a lot more than the two to three percent that the CPI indicates that it is. So, why the disparity? Well, there's some tricks that the BLS, as I said, uses to calculate the official inflation rate. Now, one of the things that they do is they weight the items in this basket of stuff. So, to start with, the BLS takes this basket of goods and they take a look at what this basket of goods might cost last year and what it might cost this year. However, they weight the basket of goods, and it's important to point out that this basket does not contain food, and it does not contain fuel. Well, obviously, we all have to buy food and fuel. They're important things that we all have to have, but they're not included in the BLS's inflation calculation methodology. Now, they weight the items in this basket. And to give you an example, healthcare is weighted at around 6% of the CPI. But healthcare represents about 17% of the U.S. economy. Now, if you want to measure economic output, you'll typically use gross domestic product to determine what the economic output of the United States is, and almost one in five dollars now of GDP is healthcare related. So even though healthcare represents nearly one in five dollars being produced in the US economy, the BLS weights healthcare at just 6% or so of the consumer price index. So one of the ways that the inflation rate can change or the inflation rate calculation methodology changes is by changing the weightings. And this is a rather arbitrary, subjective decision. If you decide to change the weightings, then depending on whether you move a weighting up or move a weighting down, the actual inflation rate that's reported can be moved up or down as well. Now, in addition to weightings, there is something else that is used, and it's something called substitution. Now, substitution is just what it sounds like. It's the act of switching lower-cost items or putting lower-cost items into the basket when prices of the items in the basket that exist surge uh, to a point that the rationale is nobody's going to buy them anyway. So even though food is not included in the basket, let's just use uh, an item that is near to my heart. Let's talk about a ribeye steak. Let's just say that a ribeye steak is in the basket of goods and, and, and services this year. And let's say ribeye steak is $10.99 a pound. Next year, if ribeye steak goes to $13.99 a pound, someone at the Bureau of Labor Statistics would say, No one's going to pay $13.99 a pound for ribeyes. Let's substitute sirloins, which are now $10.99 a pound. And by using substitution, the reported inflation rate can be subdued. So there's weighting and there's substitution. And the final adjustment that's made is something called a hedonic adjustment. Now, hedonics really just accounts for improving quality in products over time, and I'll give you an example that will give away my age. I remember a time that you actually had to stand up and walk across the room to change the channel on the television. Now, there are many of you listening today that cannot recall such a time. However, you would have to get up, walk across the room, and then you could pick from one of three channels depending on what you wanted to watch. Well, let's just say that back when you bought a television that didn't have a remote control to change the channels, let's just say the cost of the TV at the time was $200. The next year, televisions are released that have remote controls. Now you don't have to get up and walk across the room to change the channel anymore, but the cost of the TV went from $200 to $250. Well, a hedonic adjustment might just say that, hey, we don't really have inflation here. It's worth 50 bucks not to get up and walk across the room and change the channel. Even though over time you couldn't find a television to buy that you could get up and walk across the room to change the channel. They all had remotes and you were paying extra for the remotes, but that doesn't mean that there's inflation because there is the hedonic or the pleasure adjustment. Now, if you wanna look at measuring the true inflation rate, and we talk about this in the book, New Retirement Rules, and if you'd like to get a free copy of that book, you can go to newretirementrules.com and we'd be glad to send you one. I like to look at gold and what gold buys. So for example, back in 2000, gold was $270 an ounce. Today it's about 1280. Back in 2000 it took 440 ounces of gold to buy the average new home. Today it takes about 293 ounces. So while the average home price went from 119,000 to 376,000, requiring a lot more dollars to buy the house, it took a lot less gold. That makes the point that Brian London made. Again, Get a copy of the book, New Retirement Rules, by visiting the website, newretirementrulesbook.com. That is the program for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.